This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio. Powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of investment products, and the views our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. We're going to have a really interesting show today. We're going to be talking to a friend and partner at Bessemer Venture Partners uh, who does a lot of work on the cloud computing space and is out with a very interesting new study. I also have two of my colleagues, Kara Marciscano and Lee Chenren, also uh, a registered with the Foresight Fund Services. We're going to be talking with them about their views. Lee Chen's going to tell us about what's happening in China uh, on the second half of the program. Uh, Kara's going to be with us for the full hour. But we have the professor to kick us off for some commentary. Professor, I know we've got some big things happening in the markets, and I know you've been out there with some talks. We've been talking about volatility on our program, and it seems like uh, you think there, there may be more to come. Yeah. Yeah, I, I do. Uh, let, let's talk about a couple of things. Um, first of all, it's certainly good news about Merck uh, today. Not a, a surprise, but uh, it is a very good development, and that did spur the market. Um, and uh, I think that is a reop- obviously a reopening uh, 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 trade. That's uh, that's positive. Uh, the big the big negative that I see forward is that we're going to be getting a lot more inflation in this uh, fourth quarter. And I think that uh, there's going to be a lot of pressure on the Fed to accelerate uh, quantitative easing more than the schedule. And I don't think the market's prepared for that. Now, I'm not saying this is a short thing, but the market is, is, is reluctantly prepared for a taper uh, that ends in the middle of next year. But, uh, Chair, uh, Chairman Powell opened the door for a faster taper uh, if inflation data came, come in, comes in worse. And with these supply shortages, um, and uh, uh, by the way, we, we got the purchasing manager's report here on the first day of the month, and prices paid uh, jumped above 80% again. Um, uh, unexpectedly, it was expected to decline. I mean, uh, we, we did get moderate numbers on PCE, uh, personal consumption expenditures that the Fed looks like, but that's in, that's already baked in. So I think uh, if we get hotter numbers, there's going to be a lot of pressure, um, and that's going to drive interest rates higher, and uh, that's uh, going to challenge the market. I, I want to be in the reopening stocks, not in the tech stocks. The tech stocks will be challenged because of the fact of they will react more to the rise in interest rates and the threat of the rise in interest rates than than we have. Um, so uh, we'll see if if inflation does not get worse in the fourth quarter. Uh, you know, clearly that would uh, be good for the markets. Um, I think everything is going to be inflation. October thirteenth is when the CPI comes out, and we'll see if um, if that uh, does show a spike or not. So in terms of any volatility that would come, like, do you have a, I know you, before you were talking about a 5% correction from the highs, yeah. is, is, is that we've gone some from the highs, but almost, any... almost five, I mean, we sort of hit five on NASDAQ just about, no, I mean, I, I, I think that we might have a full scale correction, which is more than 10. Again, not a sure thing, but if inflation comes in worse than expected in the fourth quarter, I think we're going to have a 10% in, uh, correction down the road. We've almost had five. That's another five, six, and seven. And once that correction is done, I think you got really good values there in the market, uh, you know, going forward into uh, 2023, but uh, 2022. But I think that I think that it has to digest uh, a faster Fed and what that actually means. You know, I'm not saying people should play it for the short run, get into cash and then come in five, six, seven percent lower, even though that might be the case. Um, you know, I, I think the reopening stocks 
or or what we would call the value stocks are going to hold up the best in this. So uh, if you're positioned that way, you will not suffer the same sort of um, losses. Again, we might have to wait until the middle of October and those uh, price data comes in. And again, if it doesn't come in bad, it's hard for me to believe that given everything I've seen with supply shock and everything else, uh, you know, the, the market uh, is positioned for more upward move. Uh, let me also mention we did get the money supply uh, last Tuesday uh, for the um, um, for the month of August, and it it showed a pretty big increase. So we've slowed down a little bit in the last three months, but uh, the Fed has got to put on some more brakes, I think, to curb liquidity to actually stop the inflationary uh, momentum, and 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 that in the short run is a problem for the market. One thing I heard you talk a little bit about energy prices moving up. You're sort of involved at your your condo with the Treasury. Natural gas has been one of the hottest segments, a bit down today. But um, any any commentary yeah. on what you see? That's part of the inflation thesis, I presume. I saw in the Euro- yes. Europe CPI it was like 17 percent or so, double digit, high double digits from energy in, impacting their their high CPI print. Um, any any commentary around energy going into the winter here? Yeah, and that that is, I mean, I don't, you know, almost everyone has switched to natural gas away from oil. I mean, oil is going up in and of itself, but natural gas is spiking. Uh, I'm the treasurer of my condo. I watch on all these things that we locked in all natural gas to the first of the year, but not afterwards. And we're after be revising our budget upward. I think an average American is going to be rising, and I think inflation is going to start taking bites out of purchasing. Power now. I think there's a lot of purchasing power out there, but uh, begin to be in and 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 become a big po- political factor. I think it, I think it could be the biggest political factor in 2022 for Biden uh, and the midterm elections. Of course, that's uh, more than a year away. But I think inflation is going to be the the subject is going to affect. I still think there's going to be an infrastructure bill, and I think there's going to be a a stripped down reconciliation bill with higher taxes. But clearly stripped down if inflation gets worse because no one wants to add more stimulus to, to, to uh, you know, what we've already have. I maybe get one final comment from you. I, one of the I know you follow the Fed very, very closely, and you've yeah. had some resignations from some of these Fed presidents um, yeah. over Rosengrand, over... Kaplan, who have been a little bit more on the hawkish side. We don't know who's going to replace them. We have not had a dissent in a long time. Um, from the policy, uh, I expect we might get dissent in this fourth quarter, as a, I think some of the bank presidents are going to say, we just uh, we, 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 we've got to move faster. We're 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 not moving fast enough. Obviously, Powell is hearing that right now, but he's got a consensus they're going along because the data has been relatively benign. But as soon as it doesn't stay benign, we could get dissent towards a, a faster taper. Uh, and and therefore uh, a dot plot that moves uh, forward even more than it has been moving over the last two meetings. Professor, thanks for joining us to to start the show. Thank you very much. Talk to you next week. Uh, let me bring on our guests. Um, so we're going to have Kara Marciscano, who's a associate on my research team working with, with me. Uh, we also have Mary Dinofrio, who's a partner at Bessemer Venture Partners. Mary, welcome to Behind the Markets. I'm excited to be here. Wisdom Tree works closely with Bessemer on um, on a cloud computing ETF we license and index tied to your BVP Nasdaq BVP index. Um, so it, it's it's great to have you on and share some of your thoughts. You heard the professor kick off with some comments on technology stocks. I'm curious uh, as you guys you know you do an annual state of the cloud report and focus on the cloud a lot and technology companies. Any high level comments you would talk about and on, on how you're looking at technology companies, the cloud in particular. Yeah, certainly. I think um, one thing that we noted in a state of the cloud update from only a couple of days ago is just that the even though there is some volatility in the market, um, cloud computing stocks continue to, to outperform. Um, you know, when we were originally thinking about the power of the cloud in the future, we thought it would be incredible if the total pu- public cloud market cap were to cross one trillion. Um, but as of two days ago, it's 2.9 trillion. So very, very close to, to getting to that $3 trillion mark. And when you look at the acceleration there, it's also pretty tremendous. One trillion was only crossed in February 2020. Um, and now here in, in uh, September, beginning of October 2021, we're, we're seeing a 3x. So 
Um, what I think we we continue to see that the tailwinds b- behind cloud adoption are propelling the the public cloud markets, and you know we're we're thrilled to be to be partnered with with Nasdaq on the BVP Nasdaq Emerging Cloud Index, which which measures it really closely, and that Wisdom Tree licensed for ETF. Yeah, I, I know uh, Byron at your firm talks a lot about, and, and you as, as well, the, the Mount SaaS companies. Uh, any, any, you know, would give any color to people about what is the Mount SaaS and how it compares to what, you know, so the popular acronym, the FANG stocks, and, and what sort of the, the transition happening from the FANG to Mount SaaS? Certainly. Um, I think the, what we noticed is that in, you know, all of this cloud activity, there's a changing of the guard amongst the top performing basket of technology stocks. And for years, investors talked about the internet revolution and the emergence of Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Google, Fang, as the bearers of the new economy. Um, but we're, we, we have a, a thesis that as their growth rates slow and trends of internet and mobile mature, there's a changing of the guard within technology to the new growth drivers, um, which are the cloud leaders. And in late 2020, we coined a new basket of high-performing stocks called Mount SaaS, and they're comprised of Microsoft, Twilio, Salesforce, Amazon, Adobe, and Shopify, um, spanning application layer, infrastructure layer, um, but all companies benefiting from and enabling the move to cloud. Um, And looking at the last two years, starting in January 2020, the Mount SaaS basket has grown by over 140%. And if you look at uh, the growth of Mount SaaS in 2016, it's grown 800% versus staying up only 330%. Obviously, we think that the FANG stocks will continue to benefit from from tailwinds of of internet, mobile, and then even remote work. Um, But nonetheless, we think that cloud computing is increasingly consuming software, hardware, and services and is the most exciting megatrend of the next decade. So we think that the Mount SAS basket will will um, disproportionately benefit. Kara, let me bring you in here for a question. Any, you know, you're looking a lot at these technology stocks. Anything you want to jump in before we get into Mary's latest report? Yeah, absolutely. And it is a little bit related to her report. But as we think about inflation and and rising costs, I wanted to talk a little bit about the cloud economic model. And one of your points from your report is on how these businesses are margin leaders and how as they continue to scale, their margins actually start to increase as you see an increasing amount of revenue or what you call annual recurring revenue. So just would love to hear a little bit about um, the cloud economic model and how you think these businesses are positioned for increasing costs. Sure. I mean, the, the unit economics of cloud businesses are pretty tremendous. And I think that as investors have come to appreciate the model, um, obviously, the, the secret's out and, and multiples have expanded since. Um, but effectively, you know, cloud companies acquire customers um, up front and they have to pay especially incredibly high customer acquisition costs. Um, and then they monetize them over time. But given the fact that margin structures, gross margins are within 65 and 70 percent and then operating margins benefit so tremendously, um, partly because um, R&D expenses go down materially, you get you get a lot of leverage after, out of your um, initial product investment. And it's really only sales and marketing expense that continues to be a major um, cost center uh, or rather expense center for cloud companies over time, even at even at scale, it's. 50% of revenue that you're bringing in. Um, we see that cloud companies are able to achieve profitability by just around the time they go public, plus or minus um, one or two years, uh, and achieve tremendous free cash flow margins thereafter. You know, if you look at the entire BVP NASDAQ Emerging Cloud Index, um, the average uh, uh, LTM free cash flow margin is, you know, something like 10% with companies like Adobe and Atlassian and outperforming that materially. We're talking with Mary Dunofrio from Bessemer Venture Partners, a, a partner there, and Kara Marciscano, an associate of my research team. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Uh, uh, Mary, when you when you look at you know you did this new report scaling to a uh, hundred million, maybe sort of talk what got you focused on that report, all the content you're doing on the cloud. Uh, maybe sort of point our listeners to what what your your what got you over doing that uh, new analysis. Yeah, totally. Um, I, I really, it was, uh, so, so as you mentioned, um, I'm a partner at Bessemer and I co-lead the growth practice. And um, what I noticed is that even at the growth stage, I kept hearing the same questions from CEOs and CFOs in my portfolio. 
you know, what are typical gross margins at my stage? What did X, Y, or Z company look like when it was going public? What's the normal percentage of revenue that we should be spending on sales and marketing? You know, helping them with, with fiscal year planning, budgeting, what, what is normal and what did, what did best in class look like in their peer set? And I'd answer these questions ad hoc. Um, but after getting enough of them over a long enough period of time, I decided to put it all together. Um, and alongside my co-author, Ethan Ding, uh, we went through 10 years worth of Bessemer cloud company data to aggregate metrics from hundreds of cloud companies and service, surface the results here. And obviously, every company is different. You know, LaunchDarkly looks different from Zapier, which looks different from PagerDuty. Um, but the goal of the report was to surface averages, top quartile and bottom quartiles of metrics from ARR growth, net and gross retention, and margin structure so that you can know as a cloud founder, an executive, even an investor, um, how companies compare to one another and where you might want to improve. Um, for example, if, if you're spending more on sales and marketing as a percentage of revenue than many of your peers at a similar stage, that doesn't mean that it's necessarily a bad thing, but maybe you'll want to confirm that the unit economics of that spend justify the cost. Uh, the report's meant to help point people in the right directions for places to optimize or to do further examination. You know, the, I guess the big question, and, and you sort of talked about how the growth rates are being now well known and uh, sort of reflected in in, in prices. Um, you know, how what if you if you had a takeaway on the growth rates and how they evolve over time, where we are in those public companies in particular compared to some of what you you know sort of typically found in, in your research. But any any point on the on the growth takeaways you would you would make? Yeah, sure. Um... So what we found is that examining Bessemer's cloud portfolio over the last decade, the average growth rate for companies between 1 and 10 million of ARR was 200%, and that decreased to 60% for companies um, over 50 million of ARR, while um, there's a tighter and tighter band of growth rates as the middle 50% over that time. Um, as investors and sometimes absent a lot of additional information about companies, we use a heuristic of growth endurance, which is the rate at which growth rate is retained from one period to another. And in private cloud, it tends to be 70%. So you absent, you know, getting additional information, you can make the assumption that next year's growth rate for a cloud company will be 70% of what it is this year. And in public cloud, it's actually a little bit higher at 80%. Um, but what we find is that growth rates, even at scale um, for cloud companies, are able to um, stay incredibly high and probably higher than anticipated. Um, after 100 million of ARR, so, you know, that's even public scale, though um, public cloud companies were not considered in the report, um, the average growth rate that we saw was 60%. And that's somewhat consistent with what we see in the um, BVP NASDAQ Emerging Cloud Index, where revenue growth rate is, is about 40% average across the those um, 60 or so companies. In, in terms of, I think, you know, where the, when, 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 when these companies are deciding how to invest, you, you sort of, you talk about a, a useful metric of, of the, the customer acquisition payback period. Um, you want to maybe define for listeners what that is and how you think about that and, and what you found in, in the, the research on that? Certainly. Um, CAC payback, the rate at which costs spent to acquire a customer repaid by that customer. And it usually includes sales, marketing, customer success expense. And that timeline really matters because it's only after you reach CAC payback that you're generating positive return on a customer. During the payback period, you're simply recovering the money that you expended to acquire the customer. Um, and so what we recommend is that as you're thinking about sales and marketing expense, which as I noted a little bit earlier, even at maturity will still represent, you know, something like 50, 60% of your total revenue, that you ensure that the unit economics of that spend are, are rational. And so um, that generally means, you know, relatively low churn rates, relatively high, hopefully net retention rates where your existing customers are paying you more over time. But um, we also gross margin adjust CAC payback to ensure that, you know, as you calculate what the return is on the incremental customer acquisition, you're only considering the dollars that actually accrete to your, to your profit. But it's one of the major metrics that we use to measure sales and marketing efficiency in cloud businesses. Is there any typical numbers that people should expect for that? Or is that, uh, is that all over the map? What we find is that average CAC payback across um, time tends to go up as the kind of marginal customer is always more expensive to, to acquire. But nonetheless, when we think about um, being prescriptive about CAC payback, they're really tied to customer segment. Um, and again, this is tied to... Uh, churn rates and um, general ACVs. 
um, as your annual contract values, ACVs, increase, um, you tend to find that customer acquisition cost increases, but churn rates are lower. If, if you know, a bank, for example, is buying a million-dollar contract, they probably considered it very highly, and, cost, and switching costs are really low. So you tend to have higher CAC paybacks, but, but higher customer retention. So you can afford to actually spend more money um, acquiring that customer. Um, and vice versa for, for really low ACV, high-velocity uh, contracts. So when you're targeting a, an SMB segment, we tend to recommend CAC payback below 12 months. For mid-market focused accounts, CAC payback below 18. And for enterprise focused accounts, uh, below 24 months. Obviously, there's some, some room at the margin, but um, on, on the whole, a lower CAC payback is always better. And if I can jump in, switch gears a little bit, we did get some news over the last 12 hours or so about the 5-9 deal and the Zoom deal falling through. And I know that this was a acquisition by Zoom that was on the lower end of the multiple range, which is perhaps why it ended up not going through. From what I've been reading, it sounds like the 5-9 the shareholders didn't feel like they were being valued high enough by Zoom. So I wanted to get a sense of, on the private side or public side, what industries are commanding the highest multiples within the, the broader cloud industry today? We're seeing um, very high multiples, particularly in, in fintech, security, and data infrastructure. Um, a lot of developer software companies are also commanding high um, multiples. I, I think it runs the gamut, but across our research, um, at least in the Bessemer portfolio, uh, those three segments, fintech, security, and data infra, have gotten the highest multiples overall, over time at least. A quick follow-up on um, ARR or annual recurring revenue. So that's not something that is necessarily available to investors in public markets since it's a non-GAAP metric. Could you help us flesh out, you know, the difference between what you guys monitor so closely on the private side versus what most investors probably have access to most readily with just the GAAP revenue line item? Yeah, certainly. So um, annual recurring revenue, ARR, is the annualized amount of recurring software revenue that a cloud company has at any point in time. And while GAAP revenue uh, only accounts for the ratable amount of annual contract value that cloud companies earn in a given period, whether recurring or one-time, ARR will give full credit for the annualized recurring contract and net out non-recurring revenue. And um, ARR will give cloud, cloud companies credit for their customer growth that gap revenue alone wouldn't capture, um, especially early on in a company's life cycle. Um, we think that this is a better and more exacting measure of um, their progress than gap revenue alone would capture. Um, I think when you know we're doing public market estimates at, at that point, you know the incremental um, ARR add and, and delta from for, to gap revenue decreases over time, and you can assume something like a, a mid-year mid booking period to, to normalize it. But um, early on, we, we love to give cloud companies credit for that um, customer growth, particularly because um, given the really low churn rates that are typical in cloud, we anticipate that it will turn into gap revenue um, over time. One of the, the metrics we you know often hear talking to your team and, and other sort of growth score, growth groups is is this efficiency score talking about sort of the combined growth rates and free cash flow margins. Anything about how surprising some of these uh, this rule of forty I often hear is you know a, a key hurdle, and and how many companies in that in the Nasdaq BVP index uh, can meet this rule of forty and the aggregate the aggregate efficiency score being very high. Any any surprises there? Anything that you, that you sort of see when you when you look at those efficiency scores? Yeah, certainly. And and the efficiency score is is free cash flow margin of ARR and ARR year over year growth rate added together. Um, and it's meant to demonstrate the trade-offs between growth and profitability. Um, younger companies, we find, have higher growth rates and higher burn rates. And then companies at maturity tend to have lower growth rates and lower burn um, as, you know, they get that leverage in, in their operating model that we talked about. Um, and the rule of 40 is often referenced um, that, you know, efficiency scores should be 40% or higher. But the average BVP NASDAQ Emerging Cloud Index company actually has efficiency scores uh, closer to 50%. And they're anchored up by the likes of Zoom, Shopify, Datadog, other really high performers. Um, and, and as an example that, that, we, that I looked at recently, um, at over you know, $3.8 billion of, of revenue, Shopify is still growing 60% year over year with 10% free cash flow margins. So their efficiency score is closer to 70%. 
Um, I think what you're what we're seeing is in tying to the initial um, point that you made is that, you know, the margin structure of cloud companies over time is incredibly favorable. And as they reach um, profitability, they're able to kind of add to their efficiency rather than dropping it off. Kara, let me come to you for a question. You know, we recently, you know, we saw some, or, or, or Mary, you could also jump in on this. Um, you know, the re, the index uh, just rebalanced recently, or relatively recently, and and had some changes and updates. Uh, any commentary around the the index rebalance? What you saw when you when you looked at uh, how that changed? Yeah. So, in a lot of ways, it was consistent with what we've seen since we launched the fund in 2019, and it's a continuation of having slow but steady additions to fund every single semi-annual rebalance that are driven by private companies going public. So we had three ads to the fund, all IPOs from January to, I'm sorry, no, December 2020 to April 2021, and then two drops that were both M&A targets. So this is a very, very active space in terms of corporate actions, companies issuing stocks, going public, and then also having a lot of M&A activity. And I know, Mary, you've written about, um, you know, that sort of activity and entrance and exits at length. Do you have any color to add there? I think it's, it's to your point, it's just a very active space, and we're, we're going to continue to see more companies added to, to the index and to um, the public cloud universe um, more broadly. You know, our own toast and, and our own toast went public last week. We saw fresh work recently, um, Amplitude recently as well. Um, and so I think that, you know, especially since, especially as the, the narrative of, of companies staying private longer has, has, um, has happened, there, there is a lot of pent up um, public, uh, public potential in the, um, in the private cloud markets. You know, we, we, we put together the uh, BVP Forbes Cloud 100 every year, and uh, there's $518 billion of equity value um, at the time of publication in August 2021 um, in out of just the private cloud unicorns that we think will come into the public markets, hopefully at some point, or at the very least be um, prime M&A targets. So, um, you know, I think that I think that we're just going to continue to see the the additional uh, additional exits, um, entrance into the public markets and, and more M&A, because as, as you were pointing out uh Space continues to be incredibly strategic. I know you mentioned that $100 million ARR bogey is important before even I'm, you know, a, a potential public IPO. Any sense of why that threshold is, is so important or has it just sort of surfaced because most companies go public after reaching that level? It's, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, I don't think there's a magic number, but um, generally what you find is that investors, um, especially public market investors, uh, tend to be interested in higher market cap companies. Um, they're more relevant. Uh, will have more staying power, and you'll you'll also be able to. There'll be enough float such that they can take material enough positions to make uh, their time and effort worth it. Um, and so, at a hundred million or more, and assuming more more normalized market environments for cloud, that's it, that's implying at least a billion, two billion dollar market cap. So I think it, it's that plus. Um, uh, plus the fact that, you know, especially when you look at comps, there are almost no uh, no uh, uh, companies going public in the cloud universe right now with with um, revenue under a hundred million. So, so Mary, uh, maybe as we as we come to final the top half of our program here, um, any things that that you're working on on the growth team that you want to highlight for people, things to to watch at Bessemer, any sort of uh, final places to to bring people even even beyond the cloud that you want to highlight for people. Sure, a lot's happening at Bessemer um, that you can you can look for. Um, as I said, I'm one of the two partners who leads the growth practice, and we we just raised another fund um, uh, about six months ago, uh, 825 million dollars, and we continue to to make some net new investments. And, and at the firm broadly, we're we're uh, also expanding. Um, our one of our partners, Alex Ferrara, just set up our London office. So um, as we've noticed the globalization of cloud, um, really making an, an effort to, to invest in the European market in particular. Um, but if you are interested or any of the listeners are interested in some of the content that we talked through today, um, all of it can be found on our website at bvp.com slash scale. Hey, you guys produce a lot of, of great stuff. It's great to be working with you on the cloud and, and hopefully more to come. Um, Mary, thank you so much for joining us on Behind the Markets. 
Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. We have Lee Chen Ren, Director of Modern Alpha at Wisdom Tree, Kara Marciscano, uh, who's an associate on our research team. Uh, we're going to be talking about China in this segment of the program. Lee Chen has a lot of direct uh, knowledge and, and contacts that help sort of understand what's happening in the China market, a lot of confusion about what's going on in China. But I, I wanted to wrap up uh, what we we're talking about on the tech side with Kara first. We, we had uh, Bessemer Venture Partners on the first half talking about the cloud space. Uh, Kara, you're focused a lot on on technology areas. Um, you also had an interesting call on cybersecurity with a uh, former head of the NSA, General uh, Admiral Rogers, um, uh, this week. Any any you know, cyber is another key theme. Anything that you heard from from Mr. Rogers and and what's uh, what's going on in the cyberspace? Yeah, so it actually ties in nicely to what Mary was mentioning that the the stocks commanding the highest valuation within the cloud industry are some of those that are focused on security and cybersecurity. And we, we hosted a webinar with Admiral Rogers um, from Teammate this week. And it was interesting because the conversation, which was initially intended to be sort of covering the cybersecurity industry, ended up covering a lot of, of national security. And we had actually just written a blog on how this cybersecurity problem is an issue of national security. And Admiral Rogers' point was, yes, absolutely, it's an issue of national security, but it's also an economic growth and economic security issue. And we're seeing how important it is at the forefront in so many places. Um, We just had the Biden administration hold a summit with some of the largest U.S companies out there, Google, JP Morgan, Travelers. So it's not limited to a focus for just tech stocks, insurance companies, financials. There was ADP there as well. It's a a cross-industry effort to fortify our digital infrastructure, increase the number of cybersecurity jobs in that workforce, and then driving better practices across every single sector industry out there. So it is a a national issue, a global issue, and there's a lot of focus on today. Focus on it today, and that's a massive opportunity for the companies that are focusing on on solving this growing need need today. You've also done a little look on evaluating some. Uh, you know, we have a, an index with with Teammate on the cybersecurity trends that also recently had a rebound. We talked about the cloud rebounds. Anything from the latest uh, look at what stocks are are coming to market? going public, uh, going private, and, and sort of the growth rates in some of those stocks? Yeah, the index had had pretty sizable number of additions relative to its history. So six additions, this rebalance, and the average year-over-year growth rate of revenue, again, a, a good um, correlation with what we were talking about in the beginning of, of the show on, on top-line revenue. These companies were going 43% year-over-year. So you're continuing to see the fastest growing companies getting flagged and then a few deletions. Um, So there were three net ads. So that means there are three deletions. Again, one as a result of an acquisition. In this case, the deal did go through at a 34% acquisition premium. And then there were two companies dropped from the index that ended up failing the growth score, which is a a 7% year over year revenue threshold. But um, it was a, a successful rebalance, unsurprising in a good way. And, and now the constituent count of the index continues to increase. Now at 28 stocks from 25 previously. I guess the other major trend uh, that's worth we're talking about is 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 uh, the, the vaccines and biology and and sort of what's going on with COVID. Uh, and you know we had some more Merck news this this morning on on, on new drugs to treat uh, to treat COVID. Uh, any anything that you're seeing in in that space that that uh, that's worth highlighting? Yeah, it, this is one of I think the most exciting spaces, and I think most people are paying a lot more attention to it over the last. 12 or so months, given what's going on. But we did see news from Merck about their antiviral pill. So 50% um, of their survey population had their risk of hospitalization or death cut in half. And now Merck is seeking emergency authorization to bring this drug to market. So that's very positive for Merck, which actually is a constituent of our BioRevolution Index. But 
it is being seen as a negative for some of the vaccine stocks, think Moderna, uh, Pfizer, because obviously they have a, a somewhat competing product. So while you're seeing a high-flying stock like Merck today, it's actually going to be likely a down day for the healthcare sector overall. Um, we're seeing some of the lowest levels for, for healthcare indexes out there since June today. So it's a an, an up-and-down day, but it, it is an exciting um, trial for Merck, definitely. Okay, let's bring in Li Chen. Um, so Li Chen, China has been a, a hot topic, uh, and uh, it certainly went uh, very controversial in what's going on in in the stocks. A, sort of the, the in terms of the tech stocks that Kara's focused on, China tech has definitely been hit the most. Um, as, as you've been talking to clients a lot about all the all the concerns. Maybe outline for us what what has been happening with China. Um, what is your your current thoughts on on the state of the Chinese markets? Yeah, thank you. I think um, one of the you know the biggest question uh, clients always ask is, is China investable because of the uh, down in China tech, and also you know uh, Wall Street Journal ran an article which says you know in the last thirty years. Uh, MSCI China annual return is 2.2%. That that's not you know inspiring uh, confidence in China equity. But actually, I want to say that it's actually pretty easy to understand why why that happens. It's not really China. Uh, it's the China index. You know, MSCI China index in 1992 um, bets almost close to 100%. You know, more than 90% is on the state-owned enterprises. And what's happening that's underappreciated in the U.S. is that there's this secular demand, you know, declining of Chinese state-owned enterprises um, and the rise of the private side of China. Um, probably, you know, when all the news you, you hear is about the party, but the truth is in the last five or 10 years, depends on how you measure China has become a majority private business country. So, you know, more than 50% of uh, Chinese uh, work in private business. You know, more than 50% of the taxes, it's actually closer to 75%, came from ex-state-owned companies, private companies. So I think uh, using, you know, last 30 years and an uh, index that's concentrated in state-owned enterprise, it's not a good argument to say China is uninvestable. So that's one top question uh, I've been talking to clients. Uh, another topic that comes up uh, frequently is, you know, when is the regulation going to stop? And there, it's really a little bit more nuanced. I think, uh, you know, we all we all acknowledge China and the U.S. are in a, a competitive uh, relationship in the next uh, 10 or 20 years. And you're going to see more China reporting, even though, for example, um, the, the China healthcare uh, is a, a regulation that really happened two years ago, and a lot of healthcare stocks got really beaten up. But you don't really see these headlines because, you know, two or three years ago, China was in the headline, but not in the same degree like today. You know, everything hap- happens in China. You're going to see an article coming out um, in the top news uh, newspapers uh, here. So I think. Uh, the the question of is the regulation going to stop really needs to be a little bit qualified. The the kind of news you can you know read about China is going to as if uh, there are more regulations coming. Even though on the ground, um, a lot of businesses that that I talk to uh, are not saying that there's a significant uh, increase of regulations. Um, so, so Li Shen, you know, the one of the things where it turned negative was the the education sector, and you know, basically they came out and said you can't make any profits. Uh, essentially, there are these these four or five big public education stocks, um, and then essentially they fell eighty to ninety percent, and and a lot of people became very nervous after that action. Um, myself included, and when when you see that, and and so maybe you can tell people a little bit now your perspective of what happened and where what the the media is not picking up on uh, after after the that education quote unquote reform there. Yeah, indeed. Um, the education regulation, I really believe it's the exception, not the norm. And the thing is, you know, we've been talking about you know one week after the education regulation debacle. Uh, China's uh, <clears throat> education minister was fired, um, but that you know really never got picked up uh, in the news. Um, 
So I think uh, um, uh, that that there's a little bit of disconnect. Uh, that there's a difference between uh, education. Okay, so essentially education um, now for secondary and elementary school private tutoring, the government says you know for private firms, uh, you really cannot be uh, in this business. But still, you know, private tutoring for colleges. Or for career, those areas are still growing rapidly in China. Um, and again, you know, the education minister was fired for. So this news was never uh, really picked up. Uh, and I've been kind of, you know, joking about this many times on on, on my Twitter. Um, and the other thing is that the public sentiment is actually pretty strong for stopping. Uh, private tutoring uh, rat race uh, in the elementary and secondary space uh, for typical Chinese um, because every stage of your, of your life from middle school to high school, uh, there's only 50% chance a typical Chinese student can get into high school. And then after high school, there's only 50% chance that you can get into a four-year four college. And it's all mostly test-based. So these tutoring on testing was really very much hated by the parents on the ground as well. So I think overall, the education regulation is really uh, the exception, not the norm. And uh, the government actually quietly, you know, came out a couple of times to say that, you know, kind of, uh, you know, we screwed up. Um, but I think those news are not picked up in, in the U.S. news um, because, you know, a lot of uh, reporting on China is a is a little bit more on political side, not on uh, what's actually happening uh, on the ground there. Let me just reintroduce our guest. We have Lee Chen Ren, Director of Modern Alpha at Wisdom Tree, Kara Marciscano, uh, who's an associate on our research team. Um, you know, Lee Chen, the, the other big issue I know you're focused on a lot, so it's good to hear that you don't think this, this uh, education thing was going to come into all the other tech stocks and say, hey, these cannot make a profit. And there is talks of common prosperity that, you know, maybe, you know, that this sort of social inequality, big, big successful tech companies where, you know, the, is, the, is that transporting to the, the average person? Um, you have some direct experience with that as well. Maybe talk to that as well. Yes, uh, and I, 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 you know, I will talk about that, and also several other, you know, top issues like Evergrande and uh, uh, real estate sector. Um, yeah, the common prosperity, I think, uh, got uh, you know lots of news coverage, but actually, if you know on the ground, is that first, it's not yet a national policy. It was using uh, Zhejiang Province, where I actually grew up and have, you know, 21 first cousins who are mostly in private businesses uh, as an experiment, experimentation uh, place. And actually the government gave some of the uh, specific uh, common prosperity goals, for example, you know, on education, on uh, health care. So those are really not the kind of taking money from private business and give to people kind of policies that that, that is being uh, written about common prosperity. Um, so my own family, you know, my, my brother and uh, my, my dad, uh, they are personally relatively well off in the common prosperity policies are going to hit, uh, you know, the richer uh, portion of, of the business and, and the people I'll be first to know. So I think so far, um, the, the even the media here has died down a little bit, you know, after um, after more people saying that, no, that's not what, what the media reporting about common prosperity here. And also, the, you know, I, when I talk to clients, they, you know, they told me about uh, the, you know, Alibaba, Tencent, you know, Pindodo. They are donating, you know, money out of their companies. Uh, by the way, it's not by the entrepreneurs. So that distinction is needs to be made. Most of the money, the, the so-called donations are from the companies. But actually, if you dig deeper in terms of the areas these companies are making donations, it is mostly in the areas that these companies want to compete aggressively and they have not done as well. A lot of those money is, is going there to help their own business. So for example, Alibaba you know, is uh, spending using the donation. Uh, it's it's a, it's a sizable donation to 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 help the you know third tier, fourth tier uh, 
rural areas to use their platform, e-commerce platform better. That is a direct response because they've been losing out a little bit from Pinduoduo. So uh, I think for a lot of these common prosperity and donation, the initial um, wind uh, has been you know, kind of blown over. But that is also another thing. Uh, China is going to be a political topic. Every time you read uh, some China news, you need to be very mindful that you know every topic that becomes political tends to use data or, or observation that's a little bit selected. Selected. Yeah, uh, and I know Evergrande for sure generated a lot of buzz. I think we could get to that, but I, I think one of the more interesting questions, you know, we talked about energy and gas prices with Professor Siegel, and and he saw, you know, essentially, well, I mean, we're seeing natural gas prices surge, and you're seeing China, like you're, you're seeing pictures of these uh, blackouts, sort of stoplights not working, and people backed up in cars, and there's talks of a big energy shortage. You've talked a little bit about this issue, and also being a, an encouragement on growth in China. Anything you want to highlight for people on on what's happening in in the energy world and and their their sort of need for electricity and and what's what's happening? Yeah, absolutely. And similar to Evergrande, you know, we've been I've been talking on Twitter uh, on Evergrande on you know September six, which Evergrande is not even known at that time. Um, and similar to growth, um, I think uh, the the there is a little bit uh, uh kind of wrinkle of China energy shortage that is being missed by a lot of uh, news articles here in the U.S. It, it's the, it's a, uh, the coal price, where, which contribute to 75% of, uh, 70, more than 70% of electricity power came from coal. Coal price is market, uh, decided by market, but electricity is decided by um, a national planning uh, organization, which is the National Development and the Reform Commission. Um, so because of this, you know, non-market based part of the economy, the coal uh, electricity producers really have no incentive to produce electricity because they will be losing more money if they, you know, uh, buy more coal to produce electricity. And and if you know, for me, because I know this background very well, so I was able to instantly um, also uh, caution people not over. Um, you know, panic on this electricity because the government also owns most of the electricity um, production companies. Most of those companies are state-owned and most of the, you know, a significant portion of the coal coal production capacity is also state-owned so that, you know, the government can come out and very quickly order them, you know, uh, to to start a production. And another thing is electricity price uh, is asked to be, um, and I mentioned, you know, this NDRC uh, is very much on it. And then, you know, next day they raise the electricity price by 10%. Uh, so inflation, uh, if, if, if you have been paying attention to China, you will see that the inflation, the headline inflation in China is actually pretty low versus the producer price index. And this disconnect is partly because, um, you know, some part of China's inflation, uh, like electricity, has been uh, kind of artificially kept low. But that's not the case anymore. So you, we're going to see uh, higher inflation numbers coming out of China in the next couple of months. We haven't hit Evergrande. Um, there was questions of, is Evergrande going bust going to be a systemic risk to other parts of the financial ecosystem? Anything, you know, quickly summarizing your views on what was going to happen, what, what has happened, and, and where, where the, re- the sort of remaining uncertainty is left for, for the Evergrande uh, defaults? Yeah, I think Evergrande is a great example that, you know, if you really want to know what you own on China, you need to know what, you know, what, what you own uh, in China. And uh, also uh, do not rely, do not only rely on this news report when you want to uh, analyze China equity because of this, you know, political wind uh, for U.S.-China relationship. Evergrande, you know, as I said, you know, on Twitter, I was very early and confident to call that it's not a systemic risk. And it's actually pretty easy to make that conclusion if you really understand what's going on in China. China has restructured a couple of very big firms. One of them is Huarong and the other is um, uh, Hainan Airline, HNA, 
both um, you know, Huarong is an insurance company, very tapped into the financial system of China. So China has experienced the restructuring of these large uh, failed companies. And the second thing is um, Evergrande's debt, of course, is high. It's $300 billion, but it also has uh, significant assets. Uh, so it, you know, as long as the restructuring is orderly, it's actually its impact on the financial sector is is not uh is not significant. I know a lot of people will say um, because China's uh, you know financial system is all state owned, uh, so there's no systematic risk. Actually, that's not a good way to um to draw this conclusion. The 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 point that Evergrande was not uh, a new thing, unlike Lehman, where you don't know who owes what. Well, in the Evergrande case, the government generally knows where the you know pinpoint is and who who are the who are the banks that has exposure. So that is why you know I'm able to uh, draw the conclusion quickly that Evergrande is not systematic. It's not true that just because China's uh, banks uh, are state owned that it will not have financial crisis. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, I've been you know writing more on People's Bank of China. They are extremely concerned about financial uh, risk. They released their financial risk report three months early. Um, you know that just shows that they were looking at this uh, space uh, very very uh, keenly. Um, in terms of uh, Evergrande's impact on real estate, uh, that's another reason. You know, I always talk to clients, know what you own on China. If your only exposure is China real estate, or if your only exposure is China tech, uh, that's not going to be able to catch China's growth because real estate is a sector that the government is actively trying to um, suppress the growth. We, we got to wrap, uh, Li Chen. It's been great. I, I, I take uh, your, your comments very nicely. Um, you can find her on Twitter. Li Chen is L I Q I A N underscore Ren at Twitter. Kara Mars is gone, and we got to get you on Twitter. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You've been listening to Behind the Market on Sirius XM 132. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on Sirius XM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.